Welcome back to another human exception, and it's story time again. This week, Nathan has two stories to tell us. One about a woman and her battle with some hideous wallpaper, and the other about a man haunted since childhood by another with the same name and same face. As always, prepare for foul language, but get cozy, it's story time with the human exception. Alright, well, I guess welcome back to Under the Human Exception. Uh, Hallie is moving, you know, across the country. So, tonight we have Courtney with us. Well, Nathan's going to read us some stories. Yeah, I basically picked a couple of short stories that were uh, public domain. So, you know, no wrist slapping or anything. Uh, Also, things that seemed relatively uh, interesting. Um, <laughs> and a little bit weird and uh, spooky. So we'll start with yellow wallpaper. Okay. Um, and this is by Charlotte Perkins Stetson. Uh, is even even the PDF scan? The pages are yellow. So I'm already <laughs> excited for for whatever this is. I love this story. I know this story. <laughs> oh, do you? It's really okay. good. Yeah, it's really good. Something okay. that sounds strangely familiar to me, but I have no idea. Let's go. <laughs> I got my drink. We're good to go. All right. It is very seldom that mere ordinary people like John and myself secure ancestral halls for the summer. A colonial mansion, a hereditary estate, I would say a haunted house, and reach for the height of romantic felicity. But that would be asking too much of fate. Still, I will proudly declare that there is something queer about it. Else, why should it be let so cheaply? And why have stood so long untenanted? John laughs at me, of course, but one expects that in marriage. John is practical in the extreme. He has no patience with faith, an intense horror of superstition, and he scoffs openly at any talk of things not to be felt and seen and put down in figures. John is a physician, and perhaps, I would not say it to a living soul, of course, but this is dead paper and a great relief to my mind, perhaps that is one reason I do not get well faster. You see, he does not believe I am sick. And what can one do? If a physician of high standing, and one's own husband, assures friends and relatives that there is really nothing the matter with one but temporary nervous depression, a slight hysterical tendency, what is one to do? My brother is also a physician, and also of high standing, And he says the same thing. So, I take phosphates, or phosphites, whichever it is, and tonics, and journeys, and air, 
and exercise, I am absolutely forbidden to work until I'm well again. Personally, I disagree with their ideas. Personally, I believe that congenial work with excitement and change would do me good. But what is one to do? I did write for a while in spite of them, but it does exhaust me a good deal. Having to be so sly about it, or else meet with heavy opposition. I sometimes fancy that in my condition, if I had less opposition and more society and stimulus. But John says the very worst thing I can do is to think about my condition, and I confess, it always makes me feel bad. So I would let it alone and talk about the house. The most beautiful place. It is quite alone, standing well back from the road, quite three miles from the village. It makes me think of English places that you read about, for there are hedges and walls and gates that lock, and lots of separate little houses for the gardeners and people. There is a delicious garden. I never saw such a garden, large and shady, full of box-bordered paths, and lined with long grape-covered arbors, with seats under them. There were greenhouses too, but they're all broken now. There was some legal trouble, I believe. Something about the heirs and the co-heirs. Anyhow, the place has been empty for years. That spoils my ghostliness, I'm afraid. But I don't care. There is something strange about the house. I can feel it. I even said so to John one moonlit evening. But he said what I felt was a draft and shut the window. I got unreasonably angry with John sometimes. I'm sure I never used to be so sensitive. I thought it is due to this nervous condition, but John says if I feel so, I shall neglect proper self-control. So I take pains to control myself, before him at least, and that makes me very tired. I don't like her room a bit. I wanted one downstairs that opened on the piazza and had roses all over the window and such pretty old-fashioned shints hangings. But John would not hear of it. He said there was only one window and not room for two beds. And no near room for him if he took another. He is very careful and loving and hardly lets me stir without special direction. I have a scheduled prescription for each hour in the day. He takes all care from me. And so I feel basically ungrateful not to value it more. He said we came here solely on my account that I was to have perfect rest and all the air I could get. Your exercise depends on your strength, my dear, he said, and your food somewhat on your appetite. But air you can absorb all the time. So we took the nursery at the top of the house. It was a big, airy room, the whole floor nearly, with windows that took all that look all ways and air and sunshine galore. It was nursery first, and then playroom and gymnasium. I should judge. For the windows are barred for little children, and there are rings and things in the walls. The paint and paper look as if a boy's school had used it. It is stripped off. The paper. In great patches all around the head of my bed, about as far as I can reach, and in a great place on the other side of the room, low down. I never saw worse paper in my life. 
one of those sprawling, flamboyant patterns committing every artistic sin. It is dull enough to confuse the eye in following, pronounced enough to constantly irritate and provoke study, and when you follow the lame, uncertain curves for a little distance, they suddenly commit suicide, plunging off at outrageous angles, destroying themselves in unheard-of contradictions. The color is repellent, almost revolting, a smoldering, unclean yellow, strangely faded by the slow-turning sunlight. It is a dull yet lurid orange in some places, a sickly sulfur tint in others. No wonder the children hated it. I should hate it myself if I had to live in this room long. There comes John, and I must put this away. He hates to have me write a word. We've been here two weeks, and I haven't felt like writing before since that first day. I'm sitting by the window now, up in this atrocious nursery, and there is nothing to hinder my writing as much as I please, save lack of strength. John is away all day, and even some nights when his cases are serious. I'm glad my case is not serious, but these nervous troubles are dreadfully depressing. John does not know how much I really suffer. He knows there is no reason to suffer, and that satisfies him. Of course, it is only nervousness. It does weigh on me so not to do my duty in any way. I meant to be such a help to John, such a real, such real rest and comfort, and here I am, comparative a comparative burden already. Nobody would believe that an effort it is, what an effort it is to do what little I am able, to dress and entertain and order things. It is fortunate Mary is so good with the baby, such a dear baby, and yet. I cannot be with him. It makes me so nervous. I suppose John never was nervous in his life. He laughs at me so about this wallpaper. At first, he meant to repaper the room, but afterwards, he said that I was letting it get the better of me, and that nothing was worse for a nervous patient, a nervous patient than to give way to such fancies. He said that after the wallpaper was changed, it would be the heavy bedstead, and then the barred windows, and then that gate at the head of the stairs, and so on. You know the place is doing you good, he said. And really, dear, I don't care to renovate the house just for three for a three-month's rental. Then do let us go downstairs, I said. There are much prettier rooms there. Then he took me in his arms and called me a blessed little goose and said he would, would go down cellar if I wished and have it whitewashed into the bargain. But he is right enough about the beds and windows and things. It is an airy and comfortable room as anyone need wish. And, of course, I would not be so silly as to make him uncomfortable just for a whim. I'm really getting quite fond of the big room. All but that horrid paper. Out of one window, I can see the garden. Those mysterious, deep-shaded arbors. The riotous, old-fashioned flowers and bushes and gnarly trees. Out of another, I get a lovely view of the bay and a little private wharf belonging to the estate. There's a beautiful shaded lane that runs down there from the house. I always fancy 
I see people walking in these numerous paths and arbors. But John has cautioned me not to give way to fancy in the least. He says that with my imaginative power and habit of story making, a nervous weakness like mine is sure to lead to an all manner of excited fancies, and that I ought to use my will and good sense to check the tendency. So I try. I think sometimes that if I were only well enough to write a little, it would relieve the press of ideas and rest me. But I find I get pretty tired when I try. It's so discouraging not to have any advice and companionship about my work. When I get really well, John says we will ask Cousin Henry and Julia down for a long visit. But he said he would as soon put fireworks in my pillowcase as to let me have those stimulating people about now. I wish I could get well faster, but I must not think about that. This paper looks to me as if it knew what a vicious influence it had. There's a recurrent spot where the pattern lulls like a broken neck and two bulbous eyes stare at you upside down. I get positively angry with the impertinence of it and the everlastingness. Up and down side and sideways they crawl and those absurd unblinking eyes are everywhere. There is one place where two breaths didn't match and the eyes go all up and down the line one a little higher than the other. I never saw so much expression in an inanimate thing before, and we all know how much expression they have. I used to lie awake as a child and get more entertainment and terror out of, a, out of blank walls and plain furniture than most children could find in a toy store. I remember what a kindly wink the knobs of our big and old bureau used to have, and there was one chair that always seemed like a strong friend. I used to feel that if any of the other things looked too fierce, I could always hop into that chair and be safe. The furniture in this room is no worse than inharmonious, however, for we had to bring it all from downstairs. I suppose when this was used as a playroom, they had to take the nursery things out, and no wonder. I never saw such ravages as the children have made here. The wallpaper, as I said before, is torn off in spots, and it sticketh closer than a brother. They must have had perseverance as well as hatred. Then the floor is scratched and gouged and splintered. The plaster itself is dug out here and there, and this great heavy bed, which is all we found in the room, looks as if it had been through the wars. But I don't mind it a bit. Only the paper. There comes John's sister. Such a dear girl as she is, and so careful of me. I must not let her find me writing. She's a perfect, enthusiastic housekeeper, and hopes for no better profession. I verily believe she thinks it is the writing which made me sick. But I can write when she is out, and see her a long way off from these windows. There is one that commands the road. A lovely, shaded, winding road, and one that just looks off over the country. A lovely country, too, full of the great elms and velvet meadows. This wallpaper has a kind of sub-pattern in a different shade, a particularly irritating one, for you can only see it in certain lights and not clearly then. 
But in the places where it isn't faded, and where the sun is just so, I can see a strange, provoking, formless sort of figure that seems to skulk about behind that silly and conspicuous front design. There's Sister on the Stairs. Well, the 4th of July is over. The people are all gone, and I am tired out. John thought it might do me good to see a little company, so we just had Mother and Nellie and the children down for a week. Of course, I didn't do a thing. Jenny sees everything now, but it tired me all the same. John says if I don't pick up faster, he shall send me to Weir Mitchell in the fall. But I don't want to go there at all. I had a friend who was in his hands once, and she says he's just like John and my brother, only more so. Besides, it's such an undertaking to go so far. I don't feel as if it's worthwhile to turn my hand over for anything, and I'm getting dreadfully fretful and querulous. I cry at nothing, and I cry most of the time. Of course, I don't when John is here, or anybody else. But when I am alone, and I am alone a good deal just now, John is kept in town very often by serious cases, and Jenny is good and lets me alone when I want her to. So I walk a little in the garden or down that lovely lane, sit on the porch under the roses, and lie down up here a good deal. I'm getting really fond of the room in spite of the wallpaper. Perhaps because of the wallpaper. It dwells in my mind so. I lie here on this great immovable bed. It is nailed down, I believe. And follow that pattern about by the hour. It's as good as gymnastics, I assure you. I start, we'll say, at the bottom. Down in the corner over there where it has not been touched. And I determine for the thousandth time that I will follow that pointless pattern to some sort of a conclusion. I know a little of the principle of design, and I know this thing was not arranged on any laws of radiation, or alteration, or repetition, or symmetry, or anything else that I have ever heard of. It is repeated, of course, by the breadths, but not otherwise. Looked at it in one way, each breadth stands alone, the bloated curves and the flourishes, a kind of debased Romanesque with delirium tremens, go waddling up and down in isolated columns of fatuity. But, on the other hand, they connect diagonally, and the sprawling outlines run off in great slanting waves of optic horror like a lot of wallowing seaweeds in full chase. The whole thing goes horizontally, too. At least it seems so. And I exhaust myself in trying to distinguish the order of its going in that direction. They've used a horizontal breadth for a freeze, and that adds wonderfully to the confusion. There is one end of the room where it is almost intact, and there, when the cross lights fade and the low sun shines directly upon it, I can almost fancy radiation after all. The interminable, grotesque, 
seem to form around a common center and rush off in headlong plunges of equal distraction. It makes me tired to follow it. I'll take a nap, I guess. I don't know why I should write this. I don't want to. I don't feel able. And I know John would think it absurd. But I must say what I feel and think in some way. It is such a relief. But the effort is getting to be greater than the relief. Half the time now, I am awfully lazy and lie down ever so much. John says I mustn't lose my strength and has me take cod liver oil and lots of tonics and things to say nothing of ale and wine and rare meat. Dear John, he loves me very dearly and hates to have me sick. Tried to have a real earnest, reasonable talk with him the other day and tell him how I wish he would let me go and make a visit to Cousin Henry and Julia. But he said I wasn't able to go, nor able to stand it after I got there. And I did not make out a very good case for myself, for I was crying before I had finished. It is getting to be a great effort for me to think straight. Just this nervous weakness, I suppose. And dear John gathered me up in his arms and carried me upstairs and laid me on the bed and sat me by and sat by me and read to me till I tired my head. He said I was his darling and his comfort and all he had and that I must take care of myself for his sake and keep well. He says no one but myself can help me out of it, that I must use my will and self-control and not let any silly fancies run away with me. There's one comfort. The baby is well and happy and does not have to occupy this nursery with the horrid wallpaper. If we had not used it, that blessed child would have. What a fortunate escape. Why, I wouldn't have a child of mine, an impressionable th little thing, live in such a room for worlds. Never thought of it before, but it is lucky that John kept me here after all. I can't, I can stand it so much easier than a baby, you see. Of course, I never mention it to them anymore. I am too wise, but I keep watch of it all, all the time. There are things in that paper that nobody knows but me, or ever will. Behind that outside pattern, the dim shapes, shapes get clearer every day. It is always the same shape, only very numerous. It's like a woman stooping down and creeping about behind that pattern. I don't like it a bit. I wonder, I begin to think, I wish John would take me away from here. It's so hard to talk with John about my case, because he's so wise and because he loves me so. But I tried it last night. It was moonlit. The moon shines in all around just as the sun does. I hate to see it sometimes. It creeps so slowly and always comes in by one window or another. John was asleep and I hated to waken him. So I kept still and watched the moonlight on that undulating wallpaper till I felt creepy. The faint figure behind seemed to shake the pattern just as if she wanted to get out. I got up softly and went to feel and see if the paper did move. 
And when I came back, John was awake. What is it, little girl? He said, don't go walking about like that. You'll get cold. Thought it was a good time to talk. So I told him that I really was not gaining here and that I wished he would take me away. Why, darling? He said, our lease will be up in three weeks and I can't see how to leave before. The repairs are not done at home and I can't possibly leave town just now. Of course, if you were in danger, I could and would, but you really are better, dear. Whether you can see it or not, I am a doctor, dear, and I know. You are gaining flesh and color. Your appetite is better. I feel really much easier about you. I don't weigh a bit more, said I, nor as much. And my appetite may be better in the evening when you're here, but it is worse in the morning when you're away. Bless her little heart, he said with a big hug. She shall be as sick as she pleases. But now let's improve the shining hours by going to sleep and talk about it in the morning. And you won't go away? I asked gloomily. Why, how can I, dear? It's only three weeks more, and we'll take a nice little trip of a few days while Jenny is getting the house ready. Really, dear, you are better. Better in body, perhaps, I began, and stopped short, for he sat up straight and looked at me with such a stern, reproachful look that I could not say another word. My darling, he said. I beg of you, for my sake and for our child's sake, as well as for your own, that you will never for one instant let the idea enter your mind. There is nothing so dangerous, so fascinating to a temperament like yours. It is a false and foolish fancy. Can you not trust me as a physician when I tell you so? So, of course, I said no more on that score. And we went to sleep before long. He thought I was asleep first, but I wasn't. And I lay there for hours trying to decide whether that front pattern and the back pattern really did move together or separately. On a pattern like this, by daylight, there is a lack of sequence, a defiance of law, that is a constant irritant to a normal mind. The color is hideous enough and unreliable enough and infuriating, infuriating enough, but the pattern is torturing. You think you have mastered it, but just as you get well underway in following, it turns a back somersault and there you are, slaps you in the face, knocks you down and tramples upon you. It's like a bad dream. The outside pattern of florid arabesque, reminding one of fungus. If you can imagine a toadstool in joints, an interminable string of toadstools budding and sprouting in endless convulsions, why that is something like it. That is, sometimes. There's one marked peculiarity about this paper, a thing nobody seems to notice but myself, and that it changes as the light changes. When the sun shoots in through the east window, I always watch for that first long, straight ray. It changes so quickly that I can never quite believe it. That is why I watch it always. By moonlight, the moon shines in all night. 
when there is a moon. I wouldn't know it was the same. I wouldn't know it was the same paper. At night, in any kind of light, in twilight, candlelight, lamplight, and worst of all, by moonlight, it becomes bars. The outside pattern, I mean, and the woman behind it is as plain as can be. I didn't realize for a long time that the thing was what showed behind that dim sub-pattern, but now I'm quite sure it is a woman. By daylight, she is subdued, quiet. I fancy it's the pattern that keeps her so still, so puzzling, it keeps me quiet by the hour. I lie down ever so much now. John says it's good for me, and to sleep all I can. Indeed, he started the habit by making me lie down for an hour after each meal. It's a very bad habit, I'm convinced. For you see, I don't sleep. And that cultivates deceit, for I don't tell them I'm awake. Oh no. The fact is, I'm getting a little afraid of John. He seems very queer sometimes. And even Jenny has an inexplicable look. It strikes me occasionally, just as a scientific hypothesis that perhaps it is the paper. Watch John when he did not know I was looking, and come into the room suddenly on the most innocent excuses, and I've caught him several times looking at the paper. And Jenny too. I caught Jenny with her hand on it once. She didn't know I was in the room, and when I asked her in a quiet, a very quiet voice, the most restrained manner possible what she was doing with the paper... She turned around as if she had been caught stealing and looked quite angry. Asked me why I should frighten her so. Then she said that the paper stained everything it touched, that she had found yellow smooches on all of my clothes and John's, and she wished we would be more careful. Did not that sound innocent? But I know she was stuttering that pattern and I am determined that nobody shall find it out but myself. Life is very much more exciting now than it used to be. You see, I have something more to expect, to look forward to, to watch. I really do eat better. I am more quiet than I was. John is so pleased to see me improve. He laughed a little the other day and said I seemed to be flourishing in spite of my wallpaper. I turned it off with a laugh. I had no intention of telling him it was because of the wallpaper. He would make fun of me. He might even want to take me away. I don't want to leave now until I have found it out. There is a week more, and I think that will be enough. I'm feeling ever so much better. I don't sleep much at night for it is so interesting to watch the developments. But I sleep a good deal in the daytime. In the daytime, it is tiresome and, per and perplexing. There are always new shoots on the fungus, and new shades of yellow all over it. I cannot keep count of them, though I have tried conscientiously. It is the strangest yellow, that wallpaper. Makes me think of all the yellow things I ever saw. Not beautiful ones like buttercups, but old, foul, bad yellow things. But there is something else 
about that paper. The smell. I noticed it the moment we came into the room, but with so much air and sun, it, it wasn't bad. Now, we've had a week of fog and rain, and whether the windows are open or not, the smell is here. It creeps all over the house. I find it hovering in the dining room, skulking in the parlor, hiding in the hall, lying in wait for me on the stairs. It gets into my hair. Even when I go to ride, if I turn my head suddenly, and surprise, there's that smell. Such a peculiar odor, too. I have spent hours in trying to analyze it to find what it smelled like. It's not bad, and at first, and very gentle, but quite the subtlest, most enduring odor I ever met. In this damp weather, it is awful. I wake up in the night and find it hanging over me. It used to disturb me at first. I thought seriously of burning the house to reach the smell. But now I'm used to it. The only thing I can think of that is like the color of the paper. A yellow smell. There's a very funny mark on this wall. Low down, near the mop bar, near the mop board. A streak that runs around the room. Goes behind every piece of furniture, except the bed. A long, straight, even smooch. As if it had been rubbed over and over. I wonder how it was done, who did it, and what they did it for. Round and round and round, round and round and round. It makes me dizzy. I really have discovered something at last. Through watching so much at night, when it changes so, I have finally found out. The front, front pattern does move, and no wonder. The woman behind it shakes it. Sometimes I think there are a great many women behind, sometimes only one, and then she crawls around fast, and her crawling shakes it all over. And then the very bright spots she keeps still, and the very shady spots she just takes hold of the bars and shakes them hard. And she's all the time trying to climb through, but nobody could climb through that pattern. It strangles so. I think that's why it has so many heads. They get through, and then the pattern strangles them off and turns them upside down and makes their eyes white. If those heads were covered or taken off, it would not be half so bad. I think that woman gets out in the daytime, and I'll tell you why, privately. I've seen her. I can see her out of every one of my windows. It's the same woman. I know, for she's always creeping, and most women do not creep by daylight. I see her in that long shaded lane, creeping up and down. I see her in all those dark grape arbors, creeping all around the garden. I see her on that long road under the trees, creeping along. And then in a carriage comes, <clears throat> and when a carriage comes, she hides under the black berry vines. I don't blame her a bit. It must be very humiliating to be caught creeping by daylight. I always lock the door when I creep by daylight. I can't do it at night, for I know John would suspect something at once. And John is so queer now that I don't want to irritate him. 
I wish she would take another room. Besides, I don't want anybody to get that woman out at night but myself. I often wonder if I could see her out of all of the windows at once. But, turn as fast as I can, I can only see out of one at the time, one at a time. And though I always see her, she may be able to creep faster than I can turn. I've watched her sometimes, way off in the open country, creeping as fast as a cloud shadow in a high wind. If only that top pattern could be gotten off from the under one. I mean to try it little by little. I have found another funny thing, but I shan't tell this time. It does not do to trust people too much. There are only two more days to get this paper off, and I believe John is beginning to notice. I don't like the look in his eyes. And I heard him ask Jenny a lot of professional questions about me. She had a very good report to give. She said I slept a good deal in the daytime. John knows I don't sleep very well at night. For all, I'm so quiet. He asked me all sorts of questions, too, and pretended to be very loving and kind, as if I couldn't see through him. Still, I don't wonder he acts so, sleeping under this paper for three months. It only interests me, but I feel sure John and Jenny are secretly affected by it. Hurrah! This is the last day, but it is enough. John to stay in town overnight and won't be out until this evening. Jenny wanted to sleep with me, the sly thing, but I told her I should undoubtedly rest better for a night all alone. That was clever, for really, I wasn't alone a bit. As soon as it was moonlight and that poor thing began to crawl and shake the pattern, I got up and ran to help her. I pulled and she shook. I shook and she pulled, and before morning we had peeled off yards of that paper, a strip about as high as my head and a half around the room. And then when the sun came and that awful pattern began to laugh at me, I declared I would finish it today. We go away tomorrow, and they are moving all my furniture down again to leave things as they were before. Jenny looked at the wall in amazement, but I told her merrily that I did it out of pure spite at the vicious thing. She laughed and said she wouldn't mind doing it herself. But I must not get tired. How she betrayed herself that time. But I'm here, and no person touches this paper but me. Not alive. She tried to get me out of the room. It was too patent. But I said it was so quiet and empty and clean now that I believed I would lie down again and sleep all I could. And not to wake me even for dinner. I would call when I woke. So now she's gone, and the servants are gone, and the things are gone, and there is nothing left but that great bedstead nailed down with the canvas mattress we found on it. We shall sleep downstairs tonight and take the boat home tomorrow. I quite enjoy the room. Now it is bare again. How those children did not tear about here. This bedstead is fairly gnawed. But I must get to work. I have locked the door and thrown the key down into the front path. I don't want to go out, and I don't want to have anybody come in till John comes. I want to astonish him. I've got a rope up here that even Jenny did not find. If that woman does get out and tries to get away, I can tie her. But I forgot I could not reach far without anything to stand on. This bed will not move. 
I tried to lift and push it until I was lame. And I got so angry, I bit off a little piece at one corner, but it hurt my teeth. Then I peeled off all the paper I could reach standing on the floor. It sticks horribly, and the pattern just enjoys it. All those strangled heads and bulbous eyes and waddling fungus growths just shriek with derision. I'm getting angry enough to do something desperate. To jump out of the window would be admirable exercise, but the bars, the bars are too strong to even try. Besides, I wouldn't do it. Of course not. I know well enough that a step like that is improper and might be misconstrued. I don't like to look out of the windows even. There are so many of those creeping women, and they creep so fast. I wonder if they all come out of that wallpaper as I did. But I'm securely fastened now by my well-hidden rope. You don't get me out in the road there. I suppose I shall have to get back behind the pattern when it comes night. That's hard. It's so pleasant to be out in this great room and creep around as I please. I don't want to go outside. I won't, even if Jenny asked me to. For outside, you have to creep on the ground and everything is green instead of yellow. But here I can creep smoothly on the floor. My shoulder just fits in that long smooch around the wall, so I cannot lose my way. Why, there's John at the door. It is no use, young man. You can't open it. How he does call and pound. Now he's crying for an axe. It would be a shame to break down that beautiful door. John, dear, I said in the gentlest voice. The key is down by the front steps, under plantain leaf. That silenced him for a few moments. Then he said, very quietly indeed, Open the door, my darling. I can't, said I. The key is down by the front door under a plantain leaf. Then I said it again several times, very gently and slowly, and said it so often that he had to go and see. And he got it, of course, and came in. He stopped short by the door. What is the matter? he cried. For God's sake, what are you doing? I kept on creeping just the same, but I looked at him over my shoulder. I've got out at last, said I, in spite of you and Jane. And I've pulled off most of the paper so you can't put me back. Now why should that man have fainted? But he did, and right across my path by the wall, so that I had to creep over him every time. And that's the end. <laughs> I think I read that in high school. I definitely read it in high school. Super good. <laughs> yeah, I... I feel like the story itself is familiar, but I don't recall ever reading it. It's a good one. Mm-hmm. Definitely is a good one. Yep. All the symbolism and shit that they love to make you talk about for hours. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, about like about halfway through, because this is this was my first time reading it, and I was like, oh, I see what's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> you hadn't actually read it before? <laughs> nope. I haven't read either of these before. <laughs> well then. Yep. 
<clears throat> One of the things I wrote down was, ew, he called his little, his wife, little girl, ew. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All mm. of, like, the creepy infantilization. Blah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's very much a potent um, alliteration of how women and mental health are treated in mm-hmm. years yonder. Yeah, I wrote down, I guess it's, I was like, I would have fucking taken the baby and burned the house on, or she had postpartum depression, so maybe she would have just burned the house down. But also, I was like, I guess she was lucky that he didn't just put her in an asylum. Yeah, and I was beginning to wonder if there, if, there, if there even was still a baby. Yeah, I I was also wondering that as well. I mean, um, she could have lost the baby. And that could be why she's squirrely. Yeah. Extra squirrely. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fucking wallpaper. I'm so glad we don't have wallpaper. I'm so glad that like wallpaper is not really a thing anymore. Yeah. Definitely not as popular. Yeah. Just the idea of having to like scrape it off and peel it off if you want to replace it just sounds seems terrible. It's coming becoming more popular and people get like that peel and stick stuff. Oh. That's removable because you can do it for apartments. That might be interesting. It, it doesn't mess up your walls, but like yeah, I would. I've had to peel wallpaper. I've had to peel wallpaper off before, and it takes forever, and it's awful, and it's like it's worse than just having to paint. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> All right, Nathan, what's next? Do, do, do the story of William Wilson. It is. An Edgar Allan Poe story. All right. Let me call myself, for the present, William Wilson. That is not my real name. That name has already been the cause of the horror of the anger of my family. Have not the winds carried my name with the loss of honor to the ends of the earth? Am I not forever dead to the world? To its honors and to its flowers, to its golden hopes? And a cloud heavy and endless, does it not hang forever between my hopes and heaven? Men usually become bad by degrees, but I let all goodness fall from me in a single moment, as if I had dropped a coat. From small acts of darkness I passed, and one great step into the blackest evil ever known. Listen while I tell you of one cause that made this happen. Death is near, and it is coming, and its coming has softened my spirit. I desire in passing through this dark valley the understanding of other men. I wish them to believe that I have been, in some ways, in the power of forces beyond human control. I wish them to find, for me, In the story I am about to tell, some small fact that proves I could have done only what I did. I would have them agree that what happened to me never happened to other men. 
It is not only is it not only true that no one has ever suffered as I do? Have I not indeed been living in a dream? And am I not now dying from the horror and and the unanswered question, the mystery of the wildest dream ever dreamed on earth? I am one of a family well known for their busy minds. As a small child, I showed clearly that I too had the family character. As I became older, it grew more powerful in me. For many reasons, it became a cause of talk among among friends, and the hurt it did me was great. I wanted people always to do things my way. I acted like a wild fool and let my desires control me. My father and mother, weak in body and mind, could do little to hold me back. When their efforts failed, of course, my will grew stronger. From that on, my voice in the house was law. At an age when few children are allowed to be free, I was left to be guided by my own desires. I became the master of my own actions. I remember my first school. It was in a large house, about 300 years old, in a small town in England, among a great number of big trees. All of the houses there were very old. In truth, it was a dreamlike and spirit-quieting place that old town. At this moment, I seemed to feel the pleasant coolness under the shade of the trees. I remember the sweetness of the flowers. I hear again with delight, cannot explain the deep sound of the church bell with each hour breaking the stillness of the day. It gives me pleasure to think about this school. As much pleasure, perhaps, as I am now able to experience. Deep in suffering as I am, suffering only too real, Perhaps no one will object if for a short time I forget my troubles and tell a little about this period. Moreover, the period and place are important. It was then and there that I first saw hanging over me the terrible promise of things to come. Let me remember. The house where we boys lived and went to school was, as I have said, old and wide. The grounds about it were large, and there was a high wall around the outside for the whole school. Beyond this wall, we went three times in each week. On one day, to take short walks in the neighboring fields, and two times on Sunday to go to church. This was the one church in the village, and the head teacher of our school was also the head of the church. With a spirit of deep wonder and of doubt, I used to watch him there. This man, with a slow step and quiet, thoughtful face, in clothes so different and shining clean, could this be the same man who, with a hard face and clothes far from clean, stood ready to strike us if we did not follow the rules of the school? Oh, great and terrible question beyond my small power to answer. I well remember the playground which was behind our house. There were no trees, and the ground was as hard as stone. In front of the house, there was a small garden, but we stepped into this garden only at very special times, such as when we first arrived at school, or when we left it for the last time, or perhaps when father or mother or a friend came to take us away for a few days. But the house, that was a delightful old building, it was. To me, truly a palace. There was really no end to it. 
I was not always able to say certainly which of its two floors I happened to be on. From each room to every other, there were always three or four steps, either up or down. Then the rooms branched into each other, and these branches were too many to count, and often turned and came back upon themselves. Our ideas about the whole great house were not very far different from the thoughts we had about time without end. During the five years I was there, I could never have told anyone how to find the little room where I had, where I and some 18 or 20 other boys slept. The schoolroom was the largest room in the house, and I couldn't help thinking it was the largest in the world. It was long and low, with pointed windows and heavy wood overhead. In a far corner was the office of our head teacher, Mr. Bransby. This office had a thick door, and we would rather have died than open it when he was not there. Inside the thick walls of this old school, I passed my years from 10 to 15. Yet, I always found it interesting. A child's mind does not need the outside world. In the quiet school, I found more bright pleasure than I found later as a young man in riches or as an older man in wrongdoing. Yet, I must have been different indeed for most boys. Few men remember much of their early life. My early days stand out as clear and plain as if they had been cut in gold. And in truth, the hotness of my character and my desire to lead and command soon separated me from the others. Slowly, I gained control over all who were not greatly older than myself. Over all except one. This exception was a boy who, though not of my family, had the same name as my own. William Wilson. This boy was the only one who ever dared to say he did not believe all I told him, and who would not follow my commands. This troubled me greatly, and I tried to make the others think that I didn't care. The truth was that I felt afraid of him. I had to fight to appear equal with him, but he easily kept himself equal with me. Yet no one else felt, as I did, that this proved him the better of the two. Indeed, no one else saw the battle going on between us. All his attempts to stop me in what I wanted to do were made when no one else could see or hear us. He did not desire, as I did, to lead the other boys. He seemed only to want to hold me back. Sometimes, with wonder, and always without pleasure, I saw that his manner seemed to show a kind of love for me. I did not feel thankful for this. I thought it meant only that he thought himself to be very fine indeed, better than me. Perhaps it was this love he showed for me, added to the fact that we had the same name, and also that we had entered the school on the same day, which made people say that we were brothers. Wilson did not belong to my family even very distantly. But if we had been brothers, we would have been near to each other indeed. For I learned that we were both born on the 19th of January, 1809. This seems strange and a wonderful thing. That's the end of part one. In the first part of my story, I spoke about my life at my first school and about the other boys. 
over whom I gained over whom I gained firm control. But there was one boy who would not follow my commands, who would not do what I told him to, as the other boys did. His name was the same as mine, William Wilson. Although he did not belong to my family in any way, he seemed to feel some love for me, and had entered the school the same day as I had. Many of the boys thought we were brothers. I soon discovered that we had been born on the same day, January 19th, 1809. Wilson continued his attempts to command me, while I continued my attempts to rule him. The strange thing, the strange thing is that, although I did not like him, I could not hate him. We had a battle nearly every day, it is true. In public, it would seem that I had been proved the stronger, but he seemed somehow able to make me feel that this was not true, that he himself was stronger. Nevertheless, we continued to talk to each other in a more or less friendly way. On a number of subjects, we agreed very well. I sometimes thought that if we had met at another time and place, we might have become friends. It's not easy to explain my real feelings toward him. There was no love, and there was no fear. Yet I saw something to honor in him, and I wanted to learn more about him. Anyone experienced in human nature will not need to be told that Wilson and I were always together. This strange appearance of friendship, although we were not friends, caused no doubt the strangeness of the battle between us. I tried to make the others laugh at him. I tried to give him pain while seeming to play a light-hearted game. My attempts were not always successful, even though my plans were well made. There was much about his character that simply could not be laughed at. I could find, indeed, but one weakness. Perhaps he had been born with it, or perhaps it had come from some illness. No one but me would have made any use of it against him. He was able to speak only in a very, very soft, low voice. This weakness I never failed to use in any way that was in my power. Wilson could fight back, and he did. There was one way he had of troubling me beyond a measure. I had never liked my name. Too many other people had the same name, and I would rather have a name that was not so often heard. The word sickened me. When, on the day I arrived at the school, a second William Wilson came also, I felt angry with him for having the name. I knew I would have to hear the name each day a double number of times. The other William Wilson would always be near. The other boys often thought that my actions and my belongings were his, and his were mine. My anger grew stronger with every happening that showed that William Wilson and I were alike. Were alike in body or in mind. I had not then discovered the surprising fact that we were of the same age. But when I saw that we were of the same height, and I saw that in form and in face we were also much the same, nothing could trouble me more deeply. Although I carefully tried to keep everyone from seeing it, 
than to hear anyone saying anything about the likeness between us of mind or of body or of anything else. But in truth, I had no reason to believe that this likeness was ever noticed by our school fellows. He saw it. And as clearly as I, that I well knew. He discovered that in this likeness, he could always find a way of troubling me. This proved the more than usual sharpness of his mind. His method, which was to increase the likeness between us, lay both in words and in actions. And he followed his plan very well indeed. It was easy enough to have clothes like mine. He easily learned to walk and move as I did. His voice, of course, could not be as loud as mine, but he made his manner of speaking the same. How greatly this, this most careful picture of myself troubled me. I will not now attempt to tell. It seemed that I was the only one who noticed it. I was the only one who saw Wilson's strange and knowing smiles, pleased with having produced in my heart the desired result. He seemed to laugh within himself and cared nothing that no one laughed with him. I've already spoken of how he seemed to think he was better and wiser than I. He would try to guide me. He would often try to stop me from doing things I had planned. He would tell me what I should and should not do, and he would do this not openly, but in a word or two in which I had to look for the meeting. meaning. As I grew older, I wanted less and less to listen to him. As it was, I could not be happy under his eyes. That always watched me. Every day I showed more and more openly that I did not want to listen to anything he told me. I've said that, in the first years when we were in school together, my feelings might have easily have been turned into friendship. But in the latter months, although he talked to me less often then, I almost hated him. Yet, let me be fair to him. I can remember no time when what he told me was not wiser than would be expected from one of his years. His sense of what was good or bad was sharper than my own. I might today be a better and happier man if I had more often done. It was about the same period, if I remember rightly, that by chance he acted more openly than usual, and I discovered in his manner something that deeply interested me. Somehow, he brought to mind pictures of my earliest years. I remembered, it seemed, things I could not have remembered. These pictures were wild, half-lighted, and not clear, but I felt that very long ago I must have known this person standing before me. This idea, however, passed as quickly as it had come. It was on the same day that I had my last meeting at the school with this other strange William Wilson. That night, when everyone was sleeping, I got out of bed, and with the light in my hand, I went quietly through the house to Wilson's room. I had long been thinking of another of those plans to hurt him, with which I had until then had little success. It was my purpose now to begin to act according to this new plan. Having reached his room, I entered without a sound, leaving the light outside. I advanced a step and listened. He was asleep. I turned, took the light, and again went to the bed. I looked down upon his face. 
The coldness of ice filled my whole body. My knees trembled. My whole spirit was filled with horror. I moved the light nearer to his face. Was this... This the face of William Wilson? I saw indeed that it was, but I trembled as if with sickness as I imagined that it was not. What was there in his face to trouble me so? I looked, and my mind seemed to turn in circles in the rush of my thoughts. It was not like this, surely not like this, that he appeared in the daytime. The same name, same body, same day that we came to school, and then there was his use of my way of walking, my manner of speaking. Was it in truth humanly possible that what I saw now was the result, and the result only, of his continued efforts to be like me? Filled with wonder and fear, cold and trembling, I put out the light. In the quiet darkness, I went from his room, and, without waiting another minute, I left that old school and never entered it again. In the last part of my story, I told of my experiences in my first school. I spoke of my early meetings with a boy who looked and behaved as I did, whose name was even the same as mine, William Wilson. I told of the night when I went to Wilson's room with a plan to hurt him. What I saw that night so frightened me that I left the room and the school forever. As I stood looking down at his sleeping form and face, I might have been looking at myself in a looking glass. It was not like this, surely not like this, that he appeared in the daytime. The same name, the same face, the same body, the same day of coming to school, and then his use of my way of walking, my manner of speaking, was it in truth humanly possible that what I now saw was the result, and the result only, of his continued efforts to be like me? Afraid, I left the school and never entered it again. After some months at home, doing nothing, I went to study at the famous school called Eton. I had partly forgotten my days at the other school, or at least my feelings about those days had changed. The truth, the terrible truth, of what had happened there was gone. Now I doubted what I remembered. Now I called the subject into my mind only to smile at the strength of the strange ideas and thoughts I had once had. My life at Eden did not change this view. The fool's life, into which I carelessly threw myself, washed away everything that was valuable in my past. I do not wish, however, to tell here the story of my wrongdoing, wrongdoing which went against every law of the school and escaped the watchful eyes of all the teachers. Three years of this had passed, and I had grown much larger in body and smaller in soul. Three years of wrongdoing had made me evil. One night, I asked a group of friends, who were as evil as I, to come to a secret meeting in my room. We met at a late hour. There was strong drink, there were games of cards, and loud talking until the new day, new day began appearing in the east. Warm with the wine and with the games of chance, I was raising my glass to drink in the honor of some especially evil idea 
when I heard the voice of a certain of a servant outside the room. He said that someone had asked to speak with me in another room. I was delighted. A few steps brought me into the hall of the building. In this room, no light was hanging. But I could see the form of a young man about my height, wearing clothes like those I myself was wearing. His face I could not see. When I had entered, he came quickly up to me, and taking me, and taking me by the arm, he said softly in my ear, William Wilson. There was something in the manner of the stranger, and in the trembling of his uplifted finger, which made my eyes open wide. But it was not this which had so strongly touched my mind and heart. It was the sound of those two simple, well-known words, William Wilson, which reached into my soul. Before I could think again and speak, he was gone. For some weeks, I had thought about this happening. Who and what was this Wilson? Where did he come from? And what were his purposes? I learned that for family reasons, he had suddenly left the other school on the afternoon of the day I myself had left it. But in a short time, I stopped thinking about the subject. I gave all of my thought to plans for study at Oxford University. There I soon went. My father and mother sent me enough money to live like the sons of the richest families in England. Now, my nature showed itself with double force. I threw aside all honor. Among those who spent too much money, I spent more. And I added new forms of wrongdoing to the older ones already well known at the university. And I fell still lower. Although it may not be easily believed, it is a fact that I forgot my position as a gentleman. I learned and used all the evil ways of those men who live by playing cards. Like such skilled gamblers, I played to make money. My friends trusted me, however. To them, I was the laughing but honorable William Wilson, who freely gave gifts to anyone and everyone, who was young and who had some strange ideas, but who never did anything really bad. For two years, I was successful in this way. When a young man came to the university, a young man named Glendinning, who, people said, had quickly and easily became very rich, I soon found him of weak mind. This, of course, made it easy for me to get his money by playing cards. I played with him often. At first, with the gambler's usual skill, I let him take money from me. Then my plans were ready. I met him one night in the room of another friend, Mr. Preston. A group of eight or ten persons were there. By my careful planning, I made it seem that it was a chance that started us playing cards. In fact, it was Glendinning himself who first spoke of a card game. We sat and played far into the night, and at last the others stopped playing Glendinning and I played by ourselves, while the others watched. The game was the one I liked best. A game called Écarte. Glendinning played with a wild nervousness that I could not understand, though it was caused partly, I thought, by all the wine he had been drinking. In a very short time, he had lost a great amount of money to me. Now he wanted to double the amount for which we played. This was, as I had planned, 
but I made it seem that I did not want to agree. At last I said yes. In an hour, he had lost four times as much money as before. For some reason, his face had become white. I had thought him so rich that losing money would not trouble him. And I believe this whiteness, this paleness, was the result of drinking too much wine. Now, fearing what my friends might say about me, I was about to stop the game when his broken cry and the wild look in his eyes made me understand that he had lost everything he owned. Weak of mind and made weaker by wine, he should never have been allowed to play that night. But I had not stopped him. I had used his condition to destroy him. The room was very quiet. I could feel the icy coldness in my friends. What I would what I would have done, I cannot say, for at the moment the wide heavy doors of the room were suddenly opened, every light in the room went out, but I had seen that man had entered. He was about my own height, and he was wearing a very fine long coat. Darkness, however, was now complete. We could only feel that he was standing among us. Then we heard his voice. In a soft, low, never-to-be-forgotten voice, which I felt deep in my bones, he said, Gentlemen, I am only here to do my duty. You cannot know the true character of the man who has tonight taken a large amount of money from Mr. Glendinning. Please have him take off his coat and then look in it very carefully. While he was speaking, there was not another sound in the room. And as he ended, he was gone. Can I, shall I, tell what I felt? Need I say that I was afraid that I felt the sick fear of those who were judged forever wrong. Many hands helped me. Lights were brought. My friends looked in my coat. In it, they found all the high cards, the valuable cards needed to win in the game we had just been playing. Secretly, using these cards, I could have taken the money of anyone who played the game with me. Mr. Preston, in whose room we were, then said, Mr. Wilson, this is yours. He lifted from the floor a fine, warm coat and said, We shall not look into this to prove again what we have proved already. We have seen enough. You will understand, I hope, the need for you to leave the university. At the very least, you must leave my room and leave it now. Down in the dust, though my spirit was, I might have tried to strike him for those words if that moment I had not noticed something very surprising. My coat had cost more money than most men could spend, and it had been made especially for me. It was different, I thought, from every other coat in the world. When, therefore, Mr. Preston gave me the coat which he had picked up from the floor, I saw with terror that my own was already hung on my arm, and that the two were alike in every way. I remembered that the strange being who had so mysteriously entered and left the room, had had a coat. No one else in the group had been wearing one. I placed the coat offered by Preston over my own and left his room.
The next morning, I began a hurried journey away from Oxford University. I ran, but I could not escape. I went from city to city, and in each one, Wilson appeared. Paris, Rome, Vienna, Berlin, Moscow. He followed me everywhere. Years passed. I went to the very ends of the earth. I ran in fear, as if running from a terrible sickness. And still, he followed. Again and again, I asked myself, who is he? Where did he come from? What is his purpose? But no answer was found. And I looked with the greatest care at the methods of his watch over me. I learned little. It was noticeable, indeed, that when he appeared now, it was only to stop me in those actions from which evil might result. But what right did he have to try and control me? I also noticed that, although he always wore clothes the same as mine, he no longer let me see his face. Did he think I would not know him? He destroyed my honor at Oxford. He stopped me in my plans for getting a high position in Rome, in my love in Naples, in what he called my desire for too much money in Egypt. Did he think I could fail to see that he was the William Wilson of my schoolboy days, the hated and feared William Wilson? But let me hurry to the last scene in my story. Until now, I had not tried to strike back. He was honorable and wise. He could be everywhere, and he knew everything. I felt such wonder and fear of him that I believed myself to be weak and helpless. Though it made me angry, I had done as he desired. But now I wanted more and more to escape his control. As I began to grow stronger, it seemed to me that he began to grow weaker. I felt a burning hope. In my deepest thoughts, I decided that I was going to be free. It was at Rome, during the carnival of 1835, that I went to a dance in the great house of the Duke de, Duke de Briglio. I had been drinking more wine than as usual, and the room seemed very crowded and hot. I became angry as I pushed through the people. I was looking, let me not say why, I was looking for the young, the laughing, the beautiful wife of the Duke. Suddenly I saw her. But, as I was trying to get through the crowd to join her, I felt a hand placed upon my shoulder, and that ever-remembered quiet voice within my ear. In a wild anger, I took him in a strong hold. Wilson was dressed as I expected, like myself, in a rich coat of blue. Around his body was a band of red cloth from which hung a long, sharp sword. A mask of black cloth completely covered his face. You again! I cried, my anger growing hotter with each word. Always you again! You shall not, you shall not hunt me like this until I die! Come with me now, or I will kill you where you stand. I pulled him after me into a small room nearby. I threw him against the wall and closed the door. I commanded him to take his sword in his hand. After a moment, he took it and stood waiting, ready to fight. The fight was short indeed. I was wild with hate and anger. In my arm, I felt the strength of a thousand men. In a few moments, I had forced him back against the wall, and he was in my power. Quickly, wildly, 
I put the sword's point again again into his heart. At that moment, I heard someone was trying to open the door. I hurried to close it firmly and then turned back to my dying enemy. But what human words can tell the surprise, the horror which filled me at the scene I then saw? The moment in which I had turned to close the door had been long enough, it seemed, for a great change to come at the far end of the room. A large mirror, a looking glass, or so it seemed to me, now stood where it had not been before. As I walked toward it, in terror, I saw my own form, all spotted with blood, its face white, advancing to me with a weak and uncertain step. So it appeared, I say, but was not. It was my enemy. It was Wilson, who then stood before me in the pains of death. His mask and coat lay upon the floor. In his dress and in his face, there was nothing which was not my own. It was Wilson. But now it was my own voice I heard, as he said, I've lost. Yet from now on, you are also dead. Dead to the world. Dead to heaven. Dead to hope. In me you lived. And in my death. See by this face, which was your own, how wholly, how completely you have killed yourself. And that's it. Sorry, I was finding my mouse. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I need to unmute myself. Oh my god, no. <laughs> <laughs> That he is very the goodness in himself. It's very similar in a way to the other story. Mm -hmm. But like it's like the masculine version. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. I've, uh, I've never read that one before. Mm -mm. Thanks no, for reading to us, Dad. Hmm? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, time to go to bed. Brush okay. your teeth. Eat your snack. Good night, Craig. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My dad always read to me, so that's what it made me think of. <laughs> and that's it for this week. Next week, I'm not sure what we're doing yet. Hallie is getting settled in at her new home, so we may not fully be back to our usual programming, but we'll be sure to have something for you next Friday. It would just be rude for us not to. As always, links, pictures, and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. To keep up with all things exceptional, follow us on Facebook or Twitter at The Human Exception. Do you have a story that you want us to cover? Want to tell us that we're wrong or just want to say hi? You can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And if you want to get in on the fun, you can come join us on our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend. Mm -hmm.